Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast by a fan for the fans of the Houston Astros. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Astros Baseball. This is, uh, I guess, part five of the most epic week ever. And uh, I'm joined once again by Michelle, who did the last episode by herself with Todd Callis. And uh, Michelle, you want to announce our guest today? Yes, I have the utmost privilege and honor to introduce to you one of the voices of the Astros radio broadcast, the one, the only, and legendary Robert Ford. Good to be here. How are you guys? Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic as always. Um, how was your week? How has uh, been? Uh, how are the spring training games so far? Uh, you know, I guess the best thing I can say is the games themselves have been pretty normal uh, because there have been fans in the stands. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there haven't been any spring training games without fans in the stands. So that, you know, that part feels normal, even though obviously there, there are fewer fans than there normally would be. And there's a social distancing. Uh, it's been a little weird because one of the great things about uh, being at spring training is the access we get. Everybody is relaxed and laid back because the season hasn't started yet. Uh, and, you know, you get to, you know, we get to be in the clubhouse. You, we get to be on the backfields over by where the pitchers are throwing bullpens. Uh, and, you know, you just kind of just get to, to watch guys prepare for the season. Don't really get to do that this year. Uh, basically show up uh, at the ballpark, call the game and go home. Uh, usually we're there a little earlier than we have been this year. Uh, because we're, you know, we're talking with coaches and players and we're just, you know, we're we're getting prepared for the season as well by, by watching these guys work and seeing uh, some of the young prospects, which is one of my favorite things about spring training is seeing minor leaguers uh, that we've heard about uh, but haven't really gotten to see. Or in some cases, minor leaguers we haven't heard anything about and they they impress you uh, and, and you, you kind of keep your eye on them. Uh, but, you know, it's different this year for obvious reasons. Uh, we understand why it is, uh, but it, it's still a little disappointing because it's just it's just a lot different than what we're used to. And it makes it, you know, it just makes our job a little harder. Uh, we still are going to make the best of it, but it's different. Can you talk a little bit about uh, Framer Valdez's injury? I mean, we already know kind of what, what happened, but I mean, you got to call the game and I don't think it was on TV. Well, I wasn't. So that game, I didn't. We didn't call that game. So that game was at Port St. Lucie, where the Mets train, and the Mets are not allowing visiting radio in Port St. Lucie. Uh, so we did not. So we're not doing any of the spring games that are there because we can't. Uh, so I was actually watching that game on MLB TV on my iPad, uh, and I saw the play. Uh, you know, it looked pretty harmless. Uh, you know, a little comebacker, you know, from Francisco Lindor. Um, you know, I say harmless. I mean, harmless in baseball terms. I mean, if you put me out there 
and had Francisco Lindor hitting a ground ball back at me, I, I probably would have uh, broken all my fingers. Uh, you. <laughs> but, you know, on baseball terms, you know, he, you know, Fromber kind of reached into his glove. It looked like to field it with the bit with his bare hand. And I guess it got his hand and he threw a few warm up tosses after that. And, you know, he finished the inning and then came back out for a second inning and nothing seemed to miss. Uh, so I was as surprised as anyone to see uh, the next day when the Astros released that he had a fractured finger. Um, in terms of, you know, any more information beyond that, I really don't know. I basically know what you guys do uh, at this point. Uh, and obviously hoping that it's nothing too serious uh, for Fromber because, I mean, yeah, he's a big part of this team and, and really came into his own last year. But more than anything, you know, I, I, you know, I think about the player and, you know, how bright his future is. Uh, and I, I certainly wouldn't want anything to distract from that for, for Fromber. I know, especially Nada. I know that, uh, you know, he spoke on like a lot of the hard work that he put in in the off season prior to 2020. So prior to last season and the tremendous amount of progress we saw uh, from the work that he put in, you know, his consistency last season. So if um, and I know that I asked uh, TK about this earlier, but um, what would it mean for the Astros to uh, potentially not have Framber for a portion, and if they do lift, lose Framber for a portion, who would the Astros likely target? Would they avoid signing a free agent uh, because they want to shy away from the luxury tax thresh, uh, threshold, or what? What are your thoughts? Well, that's a good question. I know, you know, the Astros feel like you know the the coaches. I'm sure feel like they're they because it's their job to just think about the players that are there rather than think about who might be acquired because that's not their job. Uh, but I think, with the, you know, the coaches probably feel like uh, they're going to, they can get by with what they have and that's what they're going to try and do until they're told otherwise, or if they're told otherwise. Uh, but there, and there's certainly a lot of internal candidates. Obviously it puts a lot of pr more pressure too on the other guys in the rotation. Uh, it puts more pressure on Grinky. It puts more pressure, pressure on McCullers on, Christian Javier, um, so you know, and Jose Urquidy, uh, so, who pitched well uh, in his first spring outing. But I think that um, there are a lot of candidates. You think about uh, Brian Abreu. Uh, he kind of struggled a little bit last year and missed quite a bit of time, but you know, he certainly has a lot of ability. Luis Garcia, who came up last year, uh, is somebody who, who could be an option, and he pitched in the postseason last year. Uh, and you know, you never know. It could be like last year where, I mean, this time last year, no one knew anything really about Anoli Paredes or Blake Taylor. Uh, no one was expecting them to get key outs in the postseason. No one was expecting, uh, anything from Brooks Raley. Brooks Raley wasn't even in the organization this time last year. Uh, so, you know, Dusty Baker talks about it all the time about how he's always looking for some surprises, uh, cause to, to be a winning team, Obviously, you need the guys you expect to perform to do so, but you also need some guys to, to surprise you that you didn't expect. Uh, that's true with every team, and we saw it last year with the Astros. We've seen it every year, really, uh, when the Astros have been successful. So uh, hopefully some guys step up. Uh, I don't know whether the Astros are going to pick somebody up. I mean, I think it's pretty well documented that the Astros are pretty close to the luxury tax threshold, uh, and I don't know their uh, – their tolerance for potentially going over that or coming closer to it, uh, things like that. Uh, so that, that all, that always figures factors into things as well. Uh, but, um, 
if they if they do get someone, that would be great. But if not, I think that they certainly have some options internally that they can turn to. Uh, on top of the oh, sorry, on top of the Framber uh, situation, they're also having a little issues with the pitching staff as far as COVID is concerned. Yeah, yeah I mean, I guess uh, eight guys are you know right now uh, you know going through health and safety protocols. Uh, you know, you hope it's 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 just a precautionary thing and it's nothing serious and no one gets really sick or you know anything like that uh but yeah i mean i think it's just a reminder that it's still a pandemic i mean we're all excited uh i think that that we're getting closer maybe to to what normal looked like before all this stuff started uh but uh, i mean i think you know you see stuff like this you see other things going on uh in the quote unquote real world to just remind us it's still a pandemic and we still have to be careful uh, so, um, you know, hopefully it's just precautionary with these guys. And I, I know they, by major league rules, they have to be out for at least seven days. Uh, hopefully that's all it is. And, and these guys can get back to getting ready for their season. Now, uh, I wanted to ask, what do you think, uh, Forrest Whitley will do this year for the Astros? What kind of impact do you think he'll have? And if he doesn't make an impact, what do you think his future looks like with the organization? Do you think he's gone after the season if there's nothing, he doesn't do anything big? I mean, I, I think that's the biggest question in camp as far as some of these young pitching prospects. I mean, we've been talking about Forrest Whitley as a top pitching prospect for a few years now. Uh, and he's had his struggles. He's had health issues. Uh, you know, hopefully... He puts it all together this year. Uh, we haven't seen him in a spring game yet. Hopefully that happens soon. Uh, but he's got a world of talent, and that's why he's still considered a top prospect. He's still pretty young. Uh, there's still a lot of upside there, and hopefully he can tap into that. And hopefully he can, you know, make the adjustments that he needs to make. Uh, you know, obviously not having a minor league season last year, uh, you know, hurt a lot of guys. I think it really hurt him. I know Whitley has said that he was really happy with the way he performed at the alternate site, but. Uh, you know, none of us saw that. Uh, and that's not the same, obviously, as pitching in competition. Uh, so hopefully whatever he felt like he was able to find uh, last year uh, pitching at the alternate side in Corpus Christi, he's able to translate that to, to pitching against competition over a, you know, a minor league season and, and hopefully some time in the big leagues if he does well. But I mean, the sky's the limit for him. It's, it's really up to, to Forrest at this point. And uh, he certainly got a lot of support. Uh, with with the Astros, and, and hopefully that translates into some success for him. The roster's pretty much set. Uh, well, Framber kind of opens it up. I think, like with Souza, you know, being on the roster, the offensive side is kind of set. But but you have Framber opening up a spot on the pitching side of the thirteen, and then Seashek. Uh, you know, if he doesn't come through, then that'll be two guys opening up. So it's not quite set yet so there's there's some excitement and drama going on in spring training you know honestly you don't want to have too many open positions in spring training uh because that means your team's not very good and spring training's <laughs> really a tough time to evaluate uh guy i mean it's tough to evaluate guys over a month of games where you know half the time they're facing guys who aren't big league pitchers uh, or big league hitters yet. And, uh, you know, just kind of the disjointed nature. You're not playing every day. Uh, it's tough to evaluate guys in this environment 
and determine that they're ready for a major league season. The, the, really, the best test for that is the is the actual major league season. Uh, when you think about the Astros, when they were losing 100 games three years in a row, they had a lot of open positions in spring training. That's because they weren't very good. Um, and that's a tough position to be in uh, because there's only so much you can really judge from spring training. Obviously, you, you can learn some things, but really it should be about guys getting ready for the season. Um, and there, there are always going to be some competitions, but you want it to be pretty few and far between. And I think that's the case with this Astros club. Obviously, you'll always have situations uh, where there are injuries, like we could potentially see with Framber Valdez. Um, if that winds up being a long-term thing and, you know, bleeds into the regular season, then obviously that affects things. Um, but, uh, yeah, you just want guys to get ready for the season, and, and you don't want it to be a situation where you have – you know, all these open spots that guys are competing for. Now, you spoke about the, uh, uh, you know, the minor league guys a lot, and you have had an incredible minor league uh, career, as broadcasting goes, over, eight, uh, if I remember correctly, 800 minor league games. And in uh, 2000, now, I apologize for not having complete clarification on this, but you were also nominated, uh, you won, I'm so sorry, in 2003 and 2004, the Frontier uh, Broadcaster Award. Um, can you yeah. tell us about your uh, minor league career? You know, highlights, key moments, um, meaningful moments and uh, connections that you possibly made? Yeah, so seven years in the minor leagues, uh as a, as a play-by-play guy. And, uh, it all started with me, um, going to the baseball winter meetings in 2001, December, 2001, the baseball winter meetings were in Boston and it was freezing. That's out. That's also the last time the winter meetings were really in a true cold weather city, by the way. Uh, and, um, I went to the winter meetings uh, armed with cassettes. That's how long ago this was. There were actually cassettes uh, <laughs> of my of my play by play, um, and uh, it was play by play I had done into my tape recorder, sitting in the stands at Mets and Yankees games at Shea Stadium and Yankee Stadium. The bulk of my demo was uh, an inning of a Yankees Red Sox game. I called from the stands. Uh, during the 2001 season, uh, Pedro Martinez started that game for the Red Sox. Pedro Martinez, by the way, my all-time favorite pitcher to watch. Uh, and I saw him pitch in person at Yankee Stadium when he was pitching for the Red Sox a good five or six times at least. Um, and, you know, he was he's, he's still my all-time favorite pitcher to watch. Uh, so that was what I, I brought with me to the winter meetings in Boston in December 2001. Uh, they have a job fair as part of those winter meetings uh, where they're, you know, minor league teams post jobs that they have. And so I applied. There were probably six or seven broadcast openings, and I applied for every single one of them. And um, mm -hmm. the Yakima Bears of the Northwest League, they're an Arizona Diamondbacks affiliate, short season league, 76 games. Uh, I interviewed with them, and before the winter meetings were over, they – uh, offered me the job as their radio broadcaster for the 2002 season. And it took me less than uh, a nanosecond to accept. Um, <laughs> I bet. And, and so June of 2002, um, I drove cross country. I had never been to, I'd never been that far West. I, you know, I hadn't been to the West coast before. 
you know, and Yakima's not on the West Coast. It's in central Washington. But I had never been that far west. And, uh, yeah, I loaded up my car, drove cross-country to Yakima, Washington, and um, called 76 games uh, in 79 days uh, by myself. Incredible. Um, And, you know, it was great because it was basically figure this out. Um, And every single day I came to the ballpark trying to figure out a way to get better. You know, one thing I always tell young broadcasters, uh, especially – going into their first job because a lot I've gotten the question a lot, you know, do you have any advice for me going into my first play-by-play job? And the thing I always say is every day you want to try and get better. And I know people talk about that. Like I, I try and get better every single day, but how many people really do that? Um, and I can honestly say that season, that's what I did every day. I just tried to figure something else out that I wanted to work on and I want to get better at and just, just try to figure it out. And so Going into that season, I wasn't sure what to expect. Uh, By the end of that season, I was sure of two things. I was sure that this is what I wanted to do, call baseball games. And I was sure that I could be good at it. Um, Those were the two things I was sure of. Uh, And that's what that summer did for me in getting that opportunity. Um, So I stayed in Yakima in the winter. I wanted working for... There was a minor league basketball team. There used to be the, you know, so now the NBA has, they own their own developmental league. They called the G League. But back then, this wasn't the case. There was the, the most prominent uh, developmental league for the NBA, minor league for the NBA, was the Continental Basketball Association, the CBA. Um, and they had a team in Yakima, Washington, the Yakima Sun Kings. And uh, I did sales for the Sun Kings, and it reiterated that I am not a salesperson at all. Um, and I was, I mean, I was, I was miserable. I was absolutely miserable. Um, and, uh, I, um, was applying for jobs. I was trying to figure out a way to get out of Yakima and stop doing sales for this minor league basketball team. And I wound up getting a job in Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, calling baseball games for the minor league team there, uh, the Kalamazoo Kings in the frontier league, um, and I, that was working for a radio station that was calling their games. Uh, and it initially started as a seasonal position. You know, we'll see what happens after baseball season. Uh, they liked me. They decided to make me full time. Uh, so in order to keep me there full time, it was a radio station group with four stations in Kalamazoo. So I did in the baseball offseason, I did radio news anchoring and reporting. And I also did play by play and color on uh, small college and uh, high school basketball and football in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, And that was a lot of fun. I got a chance to really improve as a play-by-play broadcaster uh, in multiple sports, not just baseball, and got to do some other things, got to cover news, uh, and and got to do a lot of really fun things. And, you know, as Michelle mentioned, you know, both years I was in Kalamazoo, uh, 2003 and 2004, I was the Frontier League's broadcaster of the year, um, which which was really neat. Uh, the commissioner of the Frontier League, who actually just retired, Bill Lee, uh, I used to joke with him. He was a big fan of mine, and he used to tell me, um, you're going to win the Broadcaster Year Award every year you're in this league, but I hope it's not for long. Um, <laughs> and it wound up being for two years, and I used to joke with him back. I used to say, well, if I get to the – because he would tell me, he's like, you're going to be a big league broadcaster. You're good enough to go to the big leagues. Uh and I used to tell him, I was like, well, if I make it to the big leagues, then you, you better name your broadcaster year award after me. And, well, they did. 
Um, so that, well, that's the incredible. Frontier, the Frontier League Broadcaster Year Award is the Robert Ford Award, um, which I didn't find out about until a few years ago when a broadcaster wow. at League who won the award reached out to me on Twitter and then she's like, yeah, I won, you know, I won the award named after you. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? So then I looked into it and sure enough, that was the case. And I didn't, you know, and I was joking when I used to tell Bill Lee that, um, you know, I didn't think they would take me up on it, but yeah, it's, I mean, you get something named after you. That's pretty cool. I don't care what it is. Uh, so yeah, so I was in, you know, Kalamazoo for two years. Um, and then, uh, I, uh, got, uh, the job in uh, Binghamton, New York, as the radio guy for the Binghamton Mets, double-A affiliate of the New York Mets, and uh, wound up moving there, and I was in Binghamton for four years. I wound up doing uh, more college basketball when I was there. I did uh, um, did four years of, uh, I was the women's basketball radio broadcaster for uh, Binghamton University, uh, Division One school there. Uh, you know, mid-major, and I did that for four years and would fill in on the men's games and uh, would do other broadcasting and other things to, to, to make ends meet. And, um, yeah, I was there for four years. And uh, my lat what wound up being my last year in Binghamton, uh, the uh, program director that I had worked with in Kalamazoo had hired me. His name is Ryan McGuire. He had become the program director of a sports talk radio station in Kansas city. That was also the Kansas city Royals flagship station. Um, and I had reached out to him. We had, we would keep in touch from time to time. And, uh, he told me, you know, I might have something for you here. Um, and turned out he did. And I was hired as the, uh, you know, Royals reporter for this radio station, 610 sports radio in Kansas city. Um, and uh, that, you know, I moved there. It started off as a seasonal position. I wanted becoming full time and doing sports talk radio there and doing other play by play gigs, freelance for for other ventures. Um, you know, and I wanted to be in there for four years. It was tough not to do any baseball play by play. But what I would do, I knew I wanted to still do play by play. And, you know, I felt it would get me a step closer to a big league play by play job being in Kansas City and being around a major league team. And I would. Uh, watch the games, all the home games in Kansas City from an empty broadcast booth at Kauffman Stadium. And a few times a year, I would do play-by-play into a recorder of a game so that I would always have current play-by-play demo material to send out for Major League jobs. Um, And, you know, sure enough, uh, I sent that out for the Astros opening after the 2012 season. And uh, I remember early December, I got a call uh, from the Astros, from Larry Stokes, who was the head of uh, human resources for the Astros at the time. And he called me and said, yeah, we'd like to talk to you about the Astros job. Uh, when can we fly you out here? And so next thing wow. I knew, December December 10th, 2012, uh, I flew into Houston for the day. It was, a fir- it was only the second time I'd ever been to Texas. It was the first time I'd been to Houston. Um, and I spent the day getting interviewed. I wound up if I remember correctly, it was 13 different people interviewed me. Not all of them were individuals. Some of them were group interviews. So it wasn't 13 different interviews, but it was multiple interviews, uh, interviewed with Jim Crane, interviewed with George Pistolos, who was a team president at the time. Uh, Bill Brown was sitting in on, on one of the interviews. Uh, it was just an absolute gauntlet, uh, especially for someone, you know, who was maybe close to realizing his dream. Uh, and it was the first time I'd ever interviewed with a big league club. 
Uh, and I, I just didn't know what to make of any of it. And I, you know, I was incredibly anxious and incredibly nervous and I'm not someone who gets nervous or anxious very often or very easily, but I definitely was that day. Uh, and, um, you know, long story short, uh, in, um, I remember Martin Luther King day, uh, I was home in Kansas city and, uh, I got a call from George Pistolos who told me they were still interested, uh, and me as a candidate for the uh, Astros radio position, uh, Jim Crane, he said, Jim Crane is going to call you later today. He wants to talk to you a little bit and ask you some questions. Uh, okay. Um, and so basically Jim, you know, so Jim called me and he basically said, um, you know, you don't have a, you don't have any big league play by play experience. Um, you know, is this, you know, he basically wants to make sure that, you know, okay, if I hire you, this guy with no big league play-by-play experience, is it going to be worth it for me? Um, and apparently I convinced him that it was. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, I still have the text in my phone from George Pistolos uh, when he told me that they were going to make me an offer um, and they were going to give me a call. It was a Friday night, and they told me they would give me a call on Monday. Um, and, uh, yeah, I... Uh, was officially named the broadcaster, you know, one of the broadcasters for the Astros, February 13th, 2013. Uh, had a little press conference at Minute Maid Park that, you know, they flew me back to Houston for. And, um, you know, I'm still here. Well, thank goodness you are. I've, I don't know how I would feel about trying to listen. Like, well, listen, I love Steve Sparks. I think he's hysterical. It's, uh, and he's, uh, you know, just very knowledgeable. But I don't know how I would feel about listening to him without you being there i just i can't really picture or the two i don't know it just feel weird very glad that you're here though um so for your stint in the uh minor league you and finally making that leap into the major league uh what was that like and um was there any added significant scene as your part of a very small unfortunately small group and baseball as an african-american broadcaster you know it was i think the four years in kansas city helped me because i was able to be around a big league club every day i covered spring training i didn't travel uh with the royals uh, i covered the road games because i would still do post-game shows for the road games post-game call-in shows um, you know, you think of the, you know, in Houston, Matt Thomas does a lot of the, you know, the 10th inning postgame shows after Astros games and others do it as well on our flagship station in Houston. That's but that's what I that's what I used to do in Kansas City uh, uh, after Royals games. And um, I think it helped me not necessarily get the Astros job, but I think it helped me have an idea of what to expect. You know, what it was like to be around a big league clubhouse every day to cover a big league team, the rhythms of 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 a big league season uh was extremely beneficial to me um and you know 2013 i think it was also great because you know steve sparks it was his first time doing radio as well and so we were kind of able to 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 figure this out together uh which was a lot of fun um and i think because we were just excited to be doing this um and excited to be in these roles for the first time ever um, I think it made it easier to call games for a team that wasn't very good. You know, I mean, 
you know, 2013 Astros, as I'm sure y'all know, you know, yeah. lost 111, 111 games yeah. at a club record. But I mean, it was, I was, you know, we were in the big leagues. Uh, it was still exciting and it was still a lot of fun. Um, and I learned a long time ago that, um, you know, you can't control wins and losses. So you need to focus on what you can control. And that's the broadcast. Um, and so that's, that's what we did. And I thought we did a good job of that. Uh, all things considered. I mean, I think, you know, we we're certainly better now than we were then, uh, just, you know, with the benefit of experience. <laughs> uh, but, uh, it was, it was a blast. Um, you know, as far as being, um, you know, one of the few black, uh, broadcasters in baseball, you know, and it's crazy because so people will talk about, you know, myself and Dave Sims, who does play by play on TV and radio for the Seattle Mariners. So we're the only two full-time play-by-play broadcasters, black play-by-play broadcasters for a major league team. There have only been four ever. Me, Dave Sims, uh, Paul Olden, who now is actually the PA announcer at Yankee Stadium. But Paul Olden did uh, play-by-play on television and radio for the Tampa Bay, the Devil Rays back then. He was their first radio broadcaster. He did games for the Yankees, for the Indians. Um, and, uh, Bill White, Bill White was a former player, uh, back in the, in the, in the fifties and sixties. And he was the lead, uh, TV play-by-play broadcaster for the New York Yankees, uh, in the seventies and into the mid eighties, um, into the late eighties actually. Um, but yeah, that's it. There've only been four. Um, so, you know, when you think about the fact that there are only two right now, that's, uh, that's that's insane. But then you think about the fact there've only been four ever, um, and half of them are working in the big leagues right now. That just that just shows you, you know, just kind of how things have progressed. And I mean, there, you know, do you think there weren't any uh, black broadcasters who were good enough to do play by play back before all this or over time? Of course, there have been, but you know, the opportunities haven't been there for a variety of reasons. And I'm someone who. You know, yeah, I think there need to be more black play-by-play broadcasters. I also think there need to be more women play-by-play broadcasters. I think there need to be more Asian play-by-play broadcasters. I think there need to be more Latino play-by-play broadcasters. Because I think the best way to grow the game, one of the best ways to grow the game, is to show people that they're represented when they turn on the TV or listen to the radio. Uh, and that there's a place for them in baseball. Uh, I feel like you're more likely to think, hey, this is a game for me or this is a game uh, that I'm more interested in if you see players and you hear broadcasters who look and sound like you do. Um, and I think that's a really important thing when people talk about growing baseball and, 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 and getting uh, more people into baseball, especially young people. I think that's such a big part of it, that representation. Um, and it needs to get better uh, on so many levels. And I think it, it is, but I've, there's still a lot of work to do. Did you feel like being uh, a black uh, affected your career at all? Like, did you think you stayed in the minor leagues longer than you should have? Or? I don't. I don't think so. Um, I don't think uh, being black has affected my play-by-play career positively or negatively. Um, you know, my my the jobs I got in Kalamazoo and Binghamton, um, I got over the phone. The first time they met me was after they hired me in both, in both of those situations. I would oh. have to say that if they had, you know, if they had met me that they wouldn't have hired me. I don't, I don't believe that. But, um, yeah, I don't really think it's had 
in terms of the jobs that I've gotten and the progression of my career, I don't think it's had an impact positively or negatively, uh, you know, with the way things worked out. But I, you know, I think, um, one of the, one of the issues is, you know, there isn't a big pipeline. And I think part of the reason there isn't a big pipeline is because, uh, I think there are a lot of people, um, you know, whether you're black or whatever you're, you're, you know, if you're a person of color or, or, or woman or whatever the case may be, uh, there aren't a lot of black people in Yakima, Washington, where I got my first job. I can actually count on two hands, a number of black people I met in Yakima who are actually from Yakima. Um, and there are, you know, some people who would say as a black person, I don't know that I would feel great about moving all the way to Yakima, Washington, where there aren't very many people who look like me um, to, to do this. Um, in my case, I didn't care. Um, it just yeah. didn't matter. But um, I, was, I, want, I love baseball, and this is, I wanted to do this. And so, you know, if they told me to go to Mars to do this, I was going to go to Mars. Uh, <laughs> instead, I went to Yakima, fortunately, which is a lot closer. <laughs> um, but, uh, you it's know. still a long way. It's still a long way, but I mean, you know, the representation piece matters. Um, and I think the fact that I did that, you know, if someone who's black or Latino or Asian, if they maybe are thinking about taking a job in a similar situation somewhere where there aren't many people who look like them, I mean, hopefully, you know, my path can be an inspiration to them. Like, okay, he was able to do it. You know, I can do this too. Um, and I, you know, that's where I think the representation and, uh, you know, that, that, that really makes a difference and that really matters. Um, when you talked about representation and, uh, being of, this is what, like, I had a note underneath like this question, but, um, you, you had some remarks that you made last summer. Uh, no, I won't, I don't want to say remarks. So that feels like, um, I diminished the weight and importance of what you said. Uh, and you know what, uh, I really wish I could just pick uh, stick to sports but as a black person it's been really hard for me to s stick to sports lately that's how it started off um have you seen anything because because uh, i know uh when ev tensions were running high um and you know they're like they didn't play uh in uh, when oakland and houston they didn't play a few games uh, have you seen anything actually change or do you feel like there was a bit of like a lip service reaction from the MLB? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, that was, uh, that was quite the day. Um, you know, that was a, that was a Friday if, yeah, it was a Friday. Um, and the A's were coming to town for that series against the Astros and the A's had just, uh, been in Arlington, um, and the A's and Rangers hadn't played, uh, what was supposed to be the last game of that series, you know, protesting racial injustice. Um, and, you know, the Astros had been off that Thursday, the day before, when a lot of teams decided not to play, uh, you know, uh, after the, uh, you know, the, the shooting in, in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, Jacob Blake, um, you know, the uh, questionable, uh, sh you know, shooting by the, the police of Jacob Blake. Um, and so going into Friday, uh, I knew, you know, I had seen obviously everything that had been going on. Um, and I knew that I wanted to say something on Friday. Uh, 
And I wouldn't have said anything. I wouldn't have planned on saying anything if the A's hadn't had the protest and we were playing the A's next. Uh, because my thing was, all right, now this is affecting a team that the Astros are playing. So if it hadn't affected, I mean, I would have mentioned the protest, obviously, uh, even if they hadn't involved the Astros or hadn't involved the team that, that played the Astros. But after that happened, it was like, okay, this is in our backyard now. Um, and I felt like I couldn't go through that Astros A's game that Friday without saying something about it, about what had happened the day before when Oakland was in Arlington. Um, and so that night, Thursday night, um, I was, you know, all these thoughts are going through my head about what I wanted to say. And I generally don't write down uh, a script of what I'm going to say. I mean, I may sometimes put down bullet points of things I want to say. Um, and this is just in general, not just in broadcasting. This is just in life. Even when I've given speeches and stuff, I generally don't write things out. I may just have some bullet points or some notes. That's it. Um, I, I feel like I'm, you know, that's when I'm at my best. But the more I started thinking about this, the more I thought, um, you know, this is this is way too weighty and can be mis. You know, there's a great chance of this being misconstrued if I don't craft this exactly how I want to say it. Um, so I sat down on my phone, opened up a notes uh, document on my iPhone, and just started typing, um, and you know, edited it and you know, kind of went through it and proofread it a couple of times. I sent it to one friend of mine uh, and just asked, hey, what, you know, what do you think about this? Uh, and, uh, you know, got good feedback in that regard. Um, so my thought going into Friday was um, I am going to say something at some point during the game. I also knew that I was going to let, you know, Steve Sparks and Matt Bolter, producer engineer, I was going to let them know that at some point during the game I was going to, I was going to say something uh, just so they wouldn't be caught off guard or blindsided. Um, mm -hmm. So we get to the ballpark, you know, for that game Friday. Um, and uh, we got wind that the Astros weren't going to play um, before people realized that was what was going to happen. Um, and so I, I don't remember how I think it was. It might have been two hours before the game. I can't remember exactly when it was that, uh, you know, us, you know, me and Steve Sparks uh, got wind of the fact that the, the Astros and A's were not going to play. They were going to protest uh, instead of playing. Um, so we got that word. Um, and so, um, you know, then I was like, OK, this this is perfect now that I have this already written out because, I mean, you know, there isn't going to be a game and like, you, you know, we have to address it now. This is, you know, this isn't just in our backyard. This is in our home now. Um, so it's 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 a, a much more significant thing. So that may be even happier that I had decided to write something out and, you know, that I put something together. Um, so, yeah, when we got on the air, um, you know, and after the protest, I basically just, you know, I'm a play by play guy. So I talked I talked about described what I saw um, and then, you know, said you know, you know, what I was feeling and, you know, and, and really the, the main thing I wanted to articulate was the importance of, uh, of listening. Um, and I think a big reason why there are a lot of the issues there are today, um, you know, with, uh, uh, so, you know, with discrimination uh, and injustice is because um, people aren't listening to the people who are being discriminated against. People aren't listening to the people who, 
you know, aren't uh, being served justice in the way that that they should be or in the way others others are. And so that was really what I wanted to emphasize. And I also know I want to emphasize that Black Lives Matter, um, because to me, I mean, it's personal for me, obviously, uh, being a black person. And, you know, I want my life to matter and the lives of my family members to matter just as much as anybody else's. I mean, it's as simple as that. And to me, it's not it shouldn't be a controversial statement. Um, it shouldn't be a political statement. I know that it's become that. But to me, it shouldn't be because, uh, you know, you, people talk about all lives matter. All lives can't matter until black lives matter. Um, and so that was really important for me to convey as well. Um, and I was pretty happy with the way that all went. And, you know, what's funny is. I remember going home that night and I was exhausted. I hadn't done a game. I felt like I had called a game. I was exhausted. I think because just so much mental energy had been expended and, you know, just so much emotion had been expended. Uh, but, you know, for me personally, that it really felt like I had just called a game. Um, and I, I mean, I went home, I was ready to pass out. Uh, it was, <laughs> it was crazy. Um, you know, in terms of whether things are changing or have changed, I do think that, uh, you know, everything that happened in the spring with the protests and, uh, you know, George Floyd and, uh, you know, Ahmaud Arbery and, and Jacob Blake. And I mean, you know, there's a there's a pretty lengthy list, not just from this spring and summer, but from, you know, you know, from decades. Uh, I do think that there's more attention. Uh, I do think some things have changed. Uh, I think the biggest change that I saw, if you had told me that one day every team in Major League Baseball and, and pretty and almost every team in the four major sports would release a statement saying that Black Lives Matter, I would have never believed you. Um, so that in and of itself is a huge change, that it's gotten to a point where uh, teams realize this is important and that they, they realize that this is this is something they should be saying. This is something that they should at least uh, articulate to the general public. Um, and, you know, to me, that that's the, that that was huge. Um, and so, you know, I think that's significant. Um, you know, I think there's obviously still a lot of work that needs to be done. Uh, but, I, you know, and to see a lot of the players uh, be outspoken about this and not just Black players, uh, we've seen players who are not black also be, you know, pretty outspoken and be on board with this, which I think is very important as well. Um, I think it's very encouraging. Um, I think that there were conversations that, and I know I had conversations with people that were not being had before, um, before all this happened. And that's encouraging to me. Um, you know, we'll see where it leads, but I think this is where you have to start is with the conversations and with the listening. Um, and if you if you if you do that, um, I think that um, that that change will follow. Um, so are there any uh, are there any resources you seen specifically or any like um, it's outside of releasing statements? Are there any larger efforts currently that? are making actual changes or making a larger effort to have uh, to include more diverse people in the game of sports, especially on the broadcasting side, because as you said, there's only four uh, and only four of you in 
all of broadcasting, which is mind blowing because that it shouldn't be the case. And you've said that publicly before that uh, I wish I wasn't the second one when it came to talking about the uh, calling the World Series. Um, right. Uh, are there any initiatives currently out there? Um, maybe, and like you said, I know that you spoke about like uh, other de- like genders, other races. Um, are there any specific diversity resources or pipelines or things where they can plug in and find opportunities? Yeah, um, you know, I got involved uh, during, uh, I guess it was the end of spring, beginning of summer when, you know, baseball was still on pause and everything was basically still on pause. Uh, I wound up getting approached uh, about being a part of uh, this new not-for-profit and this new initiative. Um, And uh, it's called the Black Play-by-Play Fund. Um, And I'm now on the board of directors for it. Um, And what the Black Play-by-Play Fund is, uh, you know, one of the barriers for creating a pipeline uh, of of black broadcasters and and broadcasters of color uh, is the fact that uh, a lot of times, you you know, you have to work through the minor leagues and you're not making a lot of money. A lot of times you have to take internships where you're getting very little money. And, you know, I never did an unpaid internship or I really didn't do any broadcasting internships, honestly, in baseball or in sports. Uh, but I, you know, I went many years without making a whole lot of money. Um, and, you know, fortunately, you know, I have parents who were able to help me out financially from time to time uh, when I was working my way up the ladder. Uh, without that, it would have been a lot harder for me to to continue to do this and to get to the point where I could, you know, eventually get a major league broadcasting job. But a lot of people don't have you know, those resources don't have um, family members who can help them. Uh, You know, uh, one statistic that's become more prominent lately, uh, black families have one-tenth of the generational wealth of white families. Uh, So that means for every million dollars that a white family has, a black family has on average 100,000. And I mean, that's significant. And that, that includes, when you talk about wealth, that includes everything from, you know, equity in your home, uh, because homes in black neighborhoods uh, tend to be appraised and sell for much lower than homes in similar neighborhoods that are not overwhelmingly uh, black. You know, all those things add up. Um, and so, you know, it's more likely that an aspiring black broadcaster won't have the resources to take a low paying uh, job or internship to try and further a broadcasting career. So, started this black play-by-play fund um, and uh, we're giving uh, $3,000 scholarships. Uh, It wound up being, I think it wound up being four this year, uh, $3,000 scholarships for uh, black play-by-play broadcasters to work in the minor leagues in baseball. Um, And so we did, we awarded the first, the first scholarships, uh, this this past uh, a few months ago, so it'll be for the twenty the twenty twenty one season. Um, have teams on board and lined up to uh, to you know accept some of these interns. So this is basically to supplement whatever money they might be making uh, at these jobs, which isn't a lot. Um, and so hopefully this makes it a little easier for someone to get their foot in the door to keep their foot in the door. Um, and uh, Adam Giardino uh, is the broadcaster who initially approached me and. 
and is the founder and got this on board. And Adam Giordino is, is white, um, but he felt like, you know, after seeing everything that happened this past spring, he was kind of like, you know, what, what can I do? Um, and, you know, to his credit, he has done a lot. And, you know, you talk about what changes have happened. I think that's a change right there. You have someone who's not black, who saw what was going on and said, what can I do to help? And reached out to people like myself and others. And not just, I mean, he reached out to broadcasters. I mean, obviously he did reach out to some black broadcasters intentionally like myself. I didn't know Adam before this. Adam, uh, he's done games. He does games for uh, AAA uh, Scranton Wilkes-Barre. Um, and he also does some basketball and other sports for the University of Connecticut. Uh, but I had never met Adam before this. Um, we had some people in common, but I didn't know him. But he reached out to me. Uh, and asked me if this was something I was interested in. And, uh, you know, I wound up being on the board of directors. Uh, I agreed to help fund, uh, you know, one of these scholarships. And, um, you know, I think um, that that's that's an initiative that that is happening. Um, and hopefully we can grow it further. I, I was I was part of interviewing candidates for that as well. Um, and hopefully it's something we can grow and and, and we'll continue to get better. But yeah, that's that's one initiative in particular that I'm involved with and I'm, you know, I'm really excited about. Um, how can, uh, first for anyone who's listening who might hear this and want to learn more about it, how can they, I know that you have taken care of the 2021 season, how can they apply or where can they find this resource or where can they find information on it? Uh, well, you know, social media, uh, black, if you, if you Google black play by play fund, there's a website. Um, there is a, there is a, a Twitter feed as well. Um, so yeah, you can get more information there. Uh, information about if, you know, if you want to apply for this, uh, if you want to, uh, pledge money toward a scholarship, uh, you can do that also. Um, but yeah, uh, black play by play fund. And also too, uh, you know, people can reach out to me as well if they want more information or want to know more. And I will gladly, uh, you know, if they reach out to me on social media, you know, RA43 on Twitter or Instagram, um, you know, I would gladly uh, point them in the right direction and and help them uh, help them apply or, uh, uh, you know, show them where they, you know, where they could donate and, and you know, how that how that all works. But uh, yeah, Black Play by Play Fund, if you Google that, you'll you'll find the website and, 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 you know, the Twitter feed. Rob, I know that uh, originally we wanted to, uh, you had some questions about his major league career, correct? I did, but I think we may be taking a little bit too much, too much of his time up. Yeah, that's true. We are. Oh, feel free, feel mark. free to ask away. Feel free to ask away. Uh, oh, well, all we, right. We, we wanted to, to talk about, uh, you know, to go back to baseball, kind of the uh, talk about the Altuve walk off. And this is uh, 2017, right? Oh, um, no, you mean in the ALCS? That was uh, 2019. So the Altuve walk off. And then uh, I guess you can talk about the World Series first, you know, calling that and maybe touch on going to the parade, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, the Altuve walk-off home run, I mean, there have only been a handful of walk-off home runs to end series. Um, and the fact that I got to call one, I mean, it's pretty cool. Um, you know, that was, a, you know, obviously a great moment. Um, you know, and the Astros getting back to the World Series. 
and uh you know that was just that was just a lot of fun um kevin eschenfelder who does uh a lot of the um pre and post game stuff on television at&t uh Sportsnet Southwest, and he's been around a long time. Uh, you know, back when the Astros were on Fox Sports, he was doing pre and post as well. Um, and even back into the HSE days, he's been involved. Uh, and Kevin's a great guy. Uh, he was in he was in the back of the booth uh, watching the end of that game, and he's the one who recorded the video that wound up going, you know, somewhat viral of me, you know, my reaction, uh, yeah. me calling yes. calling the play. Um, but yeah, Kevin Eschenfelder and I, and you know, I probably haven't given him and Kevin's the sort of guy, he's pretty humble. He, I don't think he cares how much credit he gets, but, um, you know, I probably haven't given him as much credit as I should for, you know, being there and, and recording that moment. Um, uh, yeah. So that, 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 that just added to it. Uh, you know, with that video and people seeing the way I reacted, that was, uh, you know, that was, that was, a, a lot of fun. Um, as far as calling the world series, I mean, Look, the reason all of us get involved in baseball at any level, player, broadcaster, fan, trainer, owner, you want to be part of a World Series and you want to win a World Series. And obviously, I'm not the one playing in it, but you want to be part of an organization that wins a World Series. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that's everybody's dream. Uh, And, you know, the fact that I got to live that um, and not only live that, but also like I got to call the first ever championship in Astros history. Uh, you know, there there will all you know there may be others, but there will only be one first. Um, and the fact that I got to be there for that and call that, uh, I mean, there's just there just aren't words to describe how cool that is and how amazing that is. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, beyond my wildest dreams that I, you know, I would get the opportunity to do something like that. Uh, and so I was, I was really glad to be a part of it. And more than anything, I was glad that I, you know, I was able to convey to Astros fans, you know, who have followed this team their entire lives, many of whom, you know, maybe thought that they would never see this day. Um, and the fact that I was able to be a small part of it and, you know, convey uh, what happened and, and, and celebrate and, and, and be a part of that with them uh, means a lot to me. Because, um, I mean, I understand that, even though I didn't grow up an Astros fan, I understand that growing up, you know, as a sports fan and still a sports fan, uh, you know, how how special that is uh, to be able to, to uh, you know, be that link to the fans. Um, and it's something I don't take lightly. So that was, uh, that was, that was an absolute blast. And, um, you know, the thing about it, too, is once you do it once, you want to keep doing it. Uh, you want to keep calling World Series. Uh, I know that, you know, well, it may never happen again in my career. Who knows? I, I hope that's not the case. But um, I can say that I've called two World Series Game 7s. And uh, there are a lot of people who don't even get to call a World Series, let alone a Game 7. So I'm, I'm very proud of that and, and very fortunate that I got that opportunity. Um, and then, you know, the World Series Parade was the coolest thing to me of all of that in 2017, because I got to take part in that with my daughter who was seven at the time. Um, and so we got to walk, uh, through downtown Houston, um, and, you know, see how many people were just piled up on the sidewalks and in the parking Mm -hmm. garages. And, um, and the fact that I was able to share that with my daughter, um, who, you know, I mean, it's probably going to be a long time before she really understands how special that was, that she was there for that. 
and not just there for it, but like in the middle of it. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, there, I, there are no words to describe it. And, you know, people have asked me, you know, with the sign stealing and everything that went on, is this tainted for you? Does it make you feel differently about 2017? And the way I look at it, you know, moments like that, uh, you know, nothing can take that away from me. I mean, those are just so, you know, there are just so many special moments uh, and so many neat things I got to do and experience and my, that my family got to do and experience uh, because of the Astros success. Um, you know, those will always be really special to me. Um, I wanted to mention it earlier, but um, I think I had asked you another question. Yeah, your call, the Altuve walk-off call, I figured out how to convert it to an MP3 and set it as my ringtone. (laughs) (laughs) That's really cool. That's really cool. (laughs) You should share that on social media so everybody else can do it. You know, it would be a dream of mine. And, you know, and I've had a few people have told me that they've, uh, made calls of mine, their ringtone. I know a few people reached out to me to tell me, you know, I call it the last out of the 2017 World Series. Some people say they've made that their ringtone. It would be the ultimate for me to be just somewhere in Houston, like having lunch somewhere or at a coffee shop or whatever. <laughs> um, and somebody's phone started ringing and it'd be my call. I mean, that would be amazing. Okay, um, then I'll have to make that happen. I'll have to. I'll come get coffee near your place. <laughs> um, I mean, that would be that would be really cool. Um, uh, you know that that would, that that that's just like next level stuff. And I mean, I'd probably <laughs> go up to that person and ask them for their autograph. Yeah. Um, you know that that would that would be really cool. I, you know, I hope that happens one day. Uh, but <laughs> but yeah, I, I appreciate that you you did that, Michelle. <laughs> You're welcome. It was so great. Like that was. By far, besides 2017, um, one of the best moments I got to share with my dad. Because, I mean, for me, it's a generational thing. And I've said this a few times on the show. um, But my great-grandpa, my grandpa, my dad, and myself. uh, So, yeah, getting to see that. And then um, him sending me uh, that clip of your call. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've already seen that and watched it probably like 20 times. It's, <laughs> it, it was great. Um, hey, uh, can I, I want to add something to this ringtone thing. <laughs> um, I, I've had Bill Brown on here a couple of times, and he actually made my greeting for my voicemail. So if you call my phone, it's like, this is Bill Brown of the <laughs> Astros. And I was going to have him back on. And he called me and my voicemail turned on. And when I listened to the voicemail he left, it's just him laughing because he forgot all about it. <laughs> that's, awesome. that, that's that's pretty cool. Um, I have recorded one voicemail greeting. And it's so funny because like people don't call any. No one calls anybody anymore. And usually if you do call someone and <laughs> you don't get them, you just leave, you just text them. Right. You know, no one leaves voicemails. So it's different now. Up. Right. Uh, my first year in Binghamton, 2005, we had a hitting coach, Dave Hollins, who played in the big leagues. He was actually on the 93 Phillies team that lost to the Blue Jays in the World Series on Joe Carter's walk-off homer. Um, and Dave and I, you know, I got to become good friends with Dave. He's a, he's a scout now. Um, I haven't seen him in a few years, but, uh, you know, really good guy. And um, he loved my voice. 
and he called me the voice. And the way he'd say it, he would he would deepen his voice, the voice. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he asked me one day if uh, I would record his uh, voicemail greeting on his phone. And this was, you know, this was still the days. Uh, I don't even think the iPhone was out yet. It was still pretty much flip phones. Um, and uh, he said, well, what would you say? And Dave was, I mean, he could be very intimidating. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of people, he's one of those people who, uh, even guys he played with are, you know, sometimes are afraid to approach him. Um, but for whatever reason, he and I always hit it off and we always had a great relationship. And so he said to me, um, so what would you say on my greeting? And I said something like, oh, you know, you've reached Dave Holland's, I'm Robert Ford. You've reached Dave Holland's phone. Uh, he's not here right now. And he looked at me and he growled at me. That sounds too nice. It needs to sound meaner. And I was like, um, <laughs> okay. So then I was like, more dead, like, you've reached Dave Holland's phone. He's not here right now. He's like, oh, that's perfect. Here, could you record that? And he handed me his phone, and I, and I, I did. And he told me, I remember, uh, you, you know, several years after I was in Binghamton, uh, I, I saw him. He was scouting in spring training when I was with the Astros, one of my first years with the Astros. And I said, I was like, hey, Dave, uh, what's your voice bill reading? And he's like, you know, I had it until last year, and then I had to get a new phone, and I couldn't transfer it. Um, and I just looked at him. I said, Dave, sounds like you're just making excuses. And he just started <laughs> cracking up. He thought it was the funniest thing ever. Um, but yeah, I have I have oh done gosh. one voicemail uh, in in my life. I think currently my voicemail is because oh, I think it was last season. But uh, Ty Callis and maybe Jeff Baum tweeted out something about doing voicemails because I'd never really heard of that before. So I don't know if it's still my voicemail, but I think it's him talking about um, I can't come to the phone right now because I'm too busy watching Yordan hit bombs. <laughs> That's, That's pretty great. cool. Um, goodness gracious. I had one question to ask you about. Um, oh, oh, the Robert, she, di she digs really deep, Robert. She comes up with a lot of questions. No, no, no problem. I'm just a curious person. And on it, like, <laughs> it's when you're, I get, I, uh, I get the chance to talk to somebody who I've like followed and admired, and just it's, uh, I just want to, you know, get to know as much as possible. Um, when AJ Hinch took Zach Greenkey out. And then uh, mm. they hit that. Uh, how how we can pick? He uh, hit that off of uh, Will Harris. What was it like for you? What did you? What were the emotions? And how did you know Sparky react too? It was more shock. And if I remember correctly, uh, when Howie Kendrick hit the home run, it was uh, Steve. Steve Sparks was on play by play for that, um, and obviously I was there. Uh, and it was more shock than anything. Uh, it was a really good pitch by Will Harris. It was down and away. Uh, and, you know, the fact that Howie Kendrick turned that into a home run was pretty amazing. <laughs> um, it was, you know, more credit Howie Kendrick than, uh, you know, uh, you know, than, than, you know, it wasn't, wasn't really Will Harris's fault. He made a really good pitch. Uh, and it was more shock than anything, I think, was the, was the biggest thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, Grinky, you know, the best game he's pitched in an Astros uniform. Uh, well, probably the second best. He had he took a no hitter into the ninth in Seattle. Uh, 
earlier in that in that season in 2019. That's that's probably the best game he's pitched in the Astros uniform. But this is the second best game he pitched in an Astros uniform. And I mean, he was great. Uh, I mean, you know, you can debate whether he should have been taken out. There were, uh, you know, he gave up the the home run to Juan Soto uh, after a pitch wasn't called a strike that probably should have been called a strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, stuff like that. I mean, they're always. You know, when you get to a game seven that's closely decided or, you know, is is pretty close throughout, uh, there are always things you can look back on that, you know, change the outcome or, you know, how things might have been different if, you know, a call had gone a different way or uh, if, you know, and at bat had gone a different way. But that, I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, and so, or I said the Soto home run. I mean, Soto walked and the Soto walk, not the home run. There was a pitch that, you know, probably should have been called a strike. But anyway, um, you know, when, when A.J. Hinch took Zach Rinke out of that game, you know, part of me was like, man, he's pitching great. Just leave him alone. But, I mean, the Astros bullpen had been really good. You know, you bring in Will Harris. You feel like it's, you know, this is this is a, a pretty good shot. You have things kind of lined up. Garrett Cole was available in the bullpen and, you know, started warming up. Uh, and he's somebody who can give you multiple innings uh, if you need it. Uh, so it felt like things were still in pretty good shape. Uh, at that point. And uh, obviously that wound up not being the case, uh, but I don't, I mean, you can always talk about should Zach Rinke have stayed in that game longer, but it's not a situation to me where it was like, wow, this was a blunder by AJ Hinch or, uh, you know, this, this was a, you know, how, what was he thinking? I never felt that at the moment. Um, you know, it was just, you know, sometimes things just don't work out the, the way you expect them to and you know that's what happened yeah that was heartbreaking uh, it was amazing that the amazing thing about that world series that'll never go away from me is that you know like I, I have to work nights every other week and uh the the world series was going on at night and so i called in sick for game six and then I said, okay, they're going to win, so I'm going to call in. And then when they lost, I said, okay, there's no way every team is going to lose every game at home, so I'm calling in again. So I, I use sick, two, <laughs> sick days, two sick days for game six and seven. Wow. Well, um, I'm glad you're better now. Um, <laughs> I, I feel a lot better. I was sick, but I feel better. Yeah, that was pretty amazing the way that went down with the road team winning every game. I mean, obviously, no one has ever seen that before um, in any sport, uh, you know, with seven game series. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's still a lot of fun. And, you know, I mean, this is a team in the Astros, you know, went to two World Series in three years and, uh, you know, won one and lost the other in a game seven. I don't I mean, it's obviously better if you win two World Series in three years, but I don't think they have anything to to be ashamed of whatsoever. And they came pretty darn close last season. Um, I don't think that. I don't think last season hurt as bad as 2019 did. But golly, it's just been a kind of a rough ride as an Astros fan. Has have you had any negative, really negative experiences from opposing fan bases uh, regarding you know the fallout from the scandal, or have you had any ne- negative experiences? Uh, that were like racially charged from throughout the span of your career? Have you faced, uh, encountered any negativity in that way? You know, as far as, uh, you know, uh, 
racially or anything like that. Um, nothing that I felt merited, like nothing like, you know, I think haven't been called any like ethnic slurs or anything like that. Um, definitely people who were not very, to me, were, were pretty insensitive and pretty ignorant. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's unfortunate. Um, and some of those people I've responded to, some I don't, uh, because I think uh, some people, they're not really trying to understand. Um, and, you know, there's only so much you can do about that. But I feel like most people are. Um, so, you know, in general, I haven't dealt with with much of that. Um, you know, if I, you know, fortunately, because I know people who have been in situations where someone on social media, you know, uses the N word or says, you know, some racial slur or, you know, even death threats I've, I've heard of. Uh, and, you know, obviously something like that, I would, you know, it would be beyond, you know, blocking someone on Twitter or, you know, replying. I mean, that to me, you know, that, that record, you know, that's when you contact, you know, that, that you take a lot more seriously. That's when you have to contact somebody or reach out, uh, to Twitter or contact, you know, MLB security or something like that. Fortunately, I haven't had to do that. Although I know people who have, uh, as far as, you know, with the scandal. Yeah. I mean, fans say things, uh, you know, fan is short for fanatic. Um, so I think it's easy to forget that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, there was a time, it still happens from time to time, but certainly when everything was fresh, there was a time when, you know, you tweet anything and you, you know, hashtag Astros or add Astros and somebody would respond with something about the cheating or, you know, you guys are cheaters or Altuve's a cheater or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, and yeah. most of that stuff I just brush off. I mean, there's not, there's, there's really nothing you can do. Um, there were, there were a couple of people on social media who were like, I think they thought they were, uh, you know, they were, um, some, some high powered defense attorneys or something, you, you know, <laughs> they wanted to know what I knew and did I know what was going on and, you know, all this and, you know, I mean, it is just ridiculous. Um, and you know, for the record, I didn't know what was going on when it was happening. Um, you know, I found out, I didn't know the scope of it, uh, until, uh, the rest of the rest of the world did when, you know, the, the article came out on the athletic. Um, but even if I had known, I mean, there was nothing I could have done about it anyway. And I don't, I'm not on the field. I'm not competing. Um, you know, it doesn't, it's not like it changed how I broadcasted, uh, or, you know, anything like that. So, I, you know, a lot of that stuff I just brush off. And, I mean, you know, it's, it's going to be there. There's not a whole lot you can do about it. Um, do you think that uh, if there are fans allowed in the stands, what kind of impact or potential, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, any negative uh backlash do you see coming for the players do you think it'll affect their performance on the field um who do you think will be the uh who do you think are the hardest opposing fans to deal with and then who do you think has been pretty who are some of the more pleasant opposing fans to deal with well i think i mean obviously whatever happens this year in terms of fans and fan outrage regarding the cheating scandal will be a fraction of what it would have been uh, had there been fans in the stands and there would have been a full season uh, in 2020. Um, but there will still be things. Um, I think the places that you'd expect to be tough will be tough. 
I mean, Yankee Stadium's tough for opposing fans anyway. And then you throw on the fact that the Astros, you know, have knocked the Yankees out of the playoffs, you know, 2019 and 2017, and, you know, all that. And, you know, even 2015, uh, you know, I think that uh, certainly will lead to, you know, a little bit more animus in addition to, uh, you know, the animus that's always there whenever an opposing team's in New York. Then you throw in, you know, the year Altuve won the MVP, Aaron Judge finished second, and, you know, some Yankee fans feel like, uh, you know, uh, a judge was wrong, especially after the sign stealing. So there'll be some of that. You know, obviously Dodger Stadium, uh, that's going to be a difficult environment whenever the Astros play there, uh, you know, because of you know the World Series. Uh, maybe it will be blunted a little bit because the Dodgers finally won a World Series uh, this past year. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it would be even tougher had they not. But I mean, it's still going to be there. And a lot of, you know, a lot of the players who were on that team in 2017 for the Dodgers are still there. Um, and I think that guys like Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman, um, you know, I think they're going to be hearing about it for, for a while. Um, you know, they're both signed long term and will be with the Astros for you know several more years. And uh, I think those are the guys who are really going to bear the brunt of it. Uh, you know, I think in many ways they're seen as kind of the face. Correa, too, especially if Correa winds up staying with the Astros after this year. Uh, you know, I think those are the guys who are going to, you know, the face that a lot more, um, you know, because, I mean, you know, you look at this team, you know, this year, there aren't that many guys left, especially on the position player side, who were part of the 2017 Astros. Uh but, um, yeah, I mean, there are going to be some environments that are going to be tough. But, I mean, that's just how it goes. And, uh, you know, whether it affects guys' performance, I don't know about that. Um, but I do think that playing the 2020 season without fans, uh, I think, really helped the Astros because it probably muted a lot of the the backlash and, and the vitriol that they, they would have experienced otherwise. Yeah, there is some... Um super ignorant and I they must have been joking because there is a few I think it's the same person creating burner accounts I'm like I just learned what like a burner account was but um they said they were spewing all this ignorant stuff like the Astros had engineered COVID somehow so they could not have to deal with the backlash from the scandal and that was just some of the most baseless conspiracy theories i've ever heard i mean let me tell you something if the astros were able or any team in sports were able to figure out a way to start a worldwide pandemic i mean (laughs) you know that would be i mean that would be amazing i mean it would be depressing but it would also be incredible um and uh yeah but i mean again you know fan is short for fanatic and you know there's some people out there who uh have some crazy ideas and some crazy theories um but yeah that would be uh (laughs) that would be pretty amazing oh my goodness um well i think that is i mean i could probably ask like i have so many more questions but the great thing is hopefully you'll uh uh you'll want to come back on and I can, we can continue the conversation on the next uh, appearance. Yeah, no, it was uh, great having great being on with you guys. And yeah, maybe we can do this again down the road. Oh yes, please. Um, 
before we go, Rob, where can they find you out on Twitter? And um, what are some of the best ways to um, kind of like see your, hear you and like see your uh, content? Uh, yeah, well, you know, uh, Twitter and Instagram, the best ways, uh, RA Ford three, uh, that's my handle on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, you know, uh, don't try and friend me on Facebook. I will deny your friend request. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate the love, but yeah, if I don't, I don't know you, I am not going to be your friend on Facebook. Uh, that's just the way it is. But yeah, Twitter, Instagram, anybody can follow me on there. Uh, you know, my accounts aren't private on there. Um, and I know as, as both of you probably know, I, you know, I interact with fans, uh, you know, quite a bit on, on those, both of those mediums, which is, uh, something that I really like about, about both. Uh, so yeah, that, that's the best way to reach me and to, uh, you know, if you want to see what I'm doing or any, any, any content I might have. Rob. I'm still here. Where I'm so sorry. I feel like you were just. I'm just listening. I'm enjoying every every <laughs> magical word. <laughs> <laughs> every magical word. Um, uh, before we go, guys, please don't forget to enter our giveaway. What can they get from the giveaway, Rob? They can win a shirt from our sponsors, Ram Shirts, uh, and also a dugout mug, a custom Astros baseball. Dugout mug. All you got to do is send the phrase, let's go to Astros Baseball Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys, and we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Be sure to subscribe to be alerted when there's a new episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.